Hello, everyone. This is Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. First of all, I hope you and your families are staying healthy and safe. We're back with another episode of Conversations. We have a legendary guest joining us on the podcast today. This leader is known for screenwriting, directing, and producing some of our all-time favorite movies like House Party, Boomerang, Marshall, and The Black Godfather. He contributed to the creation of several popular comic books, most notably Black Panther. And he just became the first ever Black executive producer of the Primetime Emmy Awards. He truly is a Hollywood legend. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, and it is my privilege to welcome Reginald Hudlin. Reginald, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Kelly. Glad to be here. Reginald, last time we were together in person, we were at the Clippers game back in February. We were celebrating City National Night with you and a number of our clients. We had, if you remember, the release of our Clippers Black Panther, really cool themed bobblehead, and it was such a great night, and I can't believe it was only nine months ago. It feels like years ago now that we're still living through this pandemic, so... First question, how are you and your family holding up? They're doing pretty good. Uh, I really have to give everyone credit. We've really tried to make uh, lemonades out of the situation. My kids learned some skills they should have learned a long time ago. How to wash dishes, how to do your own laundry, (laughs) how to clean up your room. It's like, yes, we are on a lifeboat here. Figure it out. So now they're ready for uh, college or whatever their fate awaits them. So those were good things. It's a new level of togetherness we've all experienced. We've had our senior and college-age daughter home with us, which has been really fun, more fun for us, like I say, than, than for her. It's, it's, it's tough for those kids who thought they were out. I'm like, oh, they're back. I know. They're not too happy about it. Yeah. Um, so, all right, let's start today about talking about the effect the pandemic has had on Hollywood, which has really been profound. We, we've obviously been hearing movies have been pushing back their release dates they're adjusting production schedules in this environment. What are some of the biggest challenges that TV and film studios are facing while we all remain socially distant? Well, it's really uh, had a profound effect and it's, it's really reshaping the entertainment business, perhaps permanently. There's a lot of big factors that are going on. One is uh, the motion picture business, just as a business. Theatrical motion pictures, uh, for me, you know, all the sacred experience. I love going to the movies. I try to go, you know, uh, as many times as possible any given month. And, you know, now we're going to, looks like we may go a year before people are back into movie theaters in a meaningful way. And that's having a lot of huge economic ripples. First of all, you've got movie studios who've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in big blockbuster movies that they can't release. So these are properties that they thought would be, you know, delivering a return on their investment that are just sitting there, right? Interest is building, building, building. So that's a lot of costs that they are are not able to monetize yet. But then there's a bigger challenge, which is the movie theaters. You know, uh, you know, there's been a lot of acquisitions, a lot of that. And, you know, now, you know, these movie theater chains have not been making money for almost a year, you know, and they've got debt, they've got to pay down. So it's a really scary situation because, you know, we don't know exactly when theaters are going to open. We don't know when business will return to normal for these companies. And we hope and pray these companies can survive because, you know, they're so integral to our culture, really. 
Um, and it would be a tragedy for any of them to not be able to recover. But it's a very scary time. Uh, and, that, and that's just movies. You know, television. And look, on one hand, if there's anything we've done a lot of is watch a lot of television while we've been locked in the house for COVID. And suddenly, you know, these companies are like, well, maybe we should reshape our business and let's make it more streaming focus. So now uh, instead of Netflix being the, the primary source of streaming product, you know, and Amazon, you know, aggressively going after their market, now all the individual studios are building streaming services as well. So there's a big question mark. You know, how many streaming services will be able to survive? They all have a really exciting content on them, you know, and I'm, I'm subscribing to all of them because that's my business. But for the average person, how many streaming services can they afford? You know, that's going to be the question. And what are the must-haves versus the eh, maybe not so much? So there's a lot of big bets going on in the entertainment industry, uh, and all these things have accelerated because of the COVID situation. That's certainly true. And there is no more creative industry than this one. So I know we'll figure it out, but there were accelerating trends that already existed before. And as you said, everybody's watching. So we, we've seen, some, you know, our favorite late night shows, our daily programs start to adapt their programming to the pandemic. Has there been something you've been most impressed with, a show or a network that you think has done a really great job of adapting? Gosh, you know, I, I'm impressed by the entire industry. I really have to say that uh, you said it right. There's a lot of innovative thinking among the guilds. You know, there are a lot of meetings trying to figure out how to continue production with COVID protocols to keep everybody safe. Because obviously, if people aren't safe, the whole thing falls apart. Safety has to be the number one issue. And safety is very complicated when you're shooting on a movie set. You know, you've got people who work inches from each other, right? And so you go, wait, six feet away? No, six feet. I can't. I, I, six inches is too far. So how do you create a working environment with 200 or more people uh, on a movie set? Uh, but some people are figuring out how to do it. And that's pretty extraordinary. And the question is, okay, are those people who did it, are they exceptional? You know, you, you know, or, or, or is this something that we can replicate on, on a massive scale? You know, some people are going, well, are there other countries where we can shoot that are safer? So there's a lot of looking about, you know, well, let's let's shoot that project somewhere overseas, which has a lower uh, COVID environment. So there's a lot of adaptation. And so people are doing their best. And again, it, it's it's really impressive and a lot of smart, innovative thinking. But ultimately, you know, it, it's not up to us. You know, it'll be really exciting to see what the new administration does, you know, as they, you know, step in and say, okay, we've got a couple of vaccines that look very promising. How soon can we feel that they are safe enough to bring out to the public? Because already you have a public very skeptical about vaccines even before all this. You know, so we've got to make sure the, uh, the, the, the public feels confident about the vaccines and takes them in a massive amount. And if there's a gap between then, do we have another shutdown period? Which nobody wants, you know, I mean, 
we still have some toilet paper in the in the in the in the garage, but still it's not something we want, but maybe it's what we need to do as a nation. You know, you see these maps, you see the whole map is red. There's no safe place. So do we just bite the bullet and for six weeks shut it down and break the curve? Feels like that should be right. But I'm no scientist. I'm a guy who, you know, makes little joke movies and stuff. So hopefully we'll get the top level of brains coming together and some clear directions from the new administration over what's best for the for the country. We need a plan. And then we need the infrastructure to execute on the plan because knock on wood, these vaccines are looking really promising. And you're right, there is a skeptical public. But if you can get them out to the neediest populations quickly, we'll be in a much better place. So that's what I'm hoping for. So I, I want to transition to talk about a monumental achievement and yet another addition to your legendary resume. I like calling it a legendary resume. On September 20th, I was watching You Made History. You became the first ever Black executive producer of the Emmys, which was quite a challenge this year. Can you tell us a little bit about the opportunity and how it came to be? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, it, it's so funny. Um, you know, there's that saying, you know, uh, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. Yeah, so often, some of the biggest opportunities of my life have been from random phone calls. You know, you sit in your office, you're working away, you got your, you know, oh, this is my, I'm going to do this project and this project. Then a phone call comes and you go, oh, drop everything. This is it. So this is one of those circumstances. I get a phone call from ABC and they say, look, you know, we're going to be producing the Emmys this year and we want you to, you know, join the production team. And I'm like, Great. And they're like, well, you know, you're going to be producing the Emmys doing COVID and we can't do anything that we normally do. We can't have a theater full of people. We, you know, we can't do any of that. You've got to figure out a whole new way of producing the Emmys. And I say, I love it. You know, there's a great saying uh, by uh, one of my heroes, Melvin Van Peebles. He said, trouble is opportunity in work clothes. And I really believe that <laughs> um, having done a lot of award shows, including the Oscars, the truth is award shows were, were ready to be reinvented. You know, we love them. We grew up watching them. But like everything else, every decade or so, you've got to shake the whole thing up. And at this point, all the award shows were kind of kind of trapped in tradition and they were kind of being smothered by tradition. So the fact that we couldn't do any of that gave us the opportunity to say, let's really think about what the point of this show is. What's the most important part of the show? And how do we save that? And anything that's not that, well, maybe we can change it. Maybe we can make it better. And that was the goal. It wasn't to do Emmys light. It was to do the next generation of Emmys. So once we figured out that the most important part was the moment when the winner is waiting and they hear their name and they go, oh, I won, <laughs> right? That's, that, that's the show, right? Because that's like you and me, doesn't matter if they're a big star or whatever, you know, we all want to hear our name read, right? There's five contenders. Are you the winner? So we knew we had to save that. But if we couldn't get people to come to us, we had to go to them. So we sent hundreds of cameras all over the country, all over the world. We had cameras 
from Los Angeles to Connecticut. We had Canada uh, cameras in Canada, in the United Kingdom, in Israel, in Berlin. I mean, you name it, we were there. And sometimes we'd have a camera and a cameraman. Some people said, no, 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 we'll take your camera. We don't want your cameraman. So we had an an independent machine and they would work with us. I mean, we had to really come up with a lot of innovative ways. And then we said, well, wouldn't it be great if we could get some people their Emmy? I mean, we can't do it for everybody. We can't be everywhere in the world. So we sent guys in hazmat suits with Emmys. And they were standing outside some people's houses. <laughs> and they were like, why is that guy there? Don't worry about it. But if they won, they ring the doorbell and said, here's your Emmy. It's nicely, freshly cleaned. So, you know, we got to do fun, crazy stuff like that. And it was really in the moment. But it, it was, I can't imagine, it's incredible, the complexity of being everywhere and doing all of that. It must have been a pretty stressful couple of hours. Was there a point in the show that you were particularly most nervous for with all of that? Absolutely. Because we wanted to say, well, why should we, the Emmys, be presented the same way every time? Maybe we can keep coming up with new crazy ways of giving people an Emmy. So we said, what if we sent people an Emmy in a box? And if you won, we would trigger a button and the box would explode open and the Emmy would pop out. So we pitched this idea to Jimmy Kimmel, who was the host of the show. And he goes, well, what happens when it doesn't work? Because I guarantee you that's not going to work. That's a crazy idea. I say, you're you're right, Jimmy. You should tell people it's not going to work. That way, if it doesn't work, this is what we expected. But if it does work, everyone's excited. So he said, okay. So we tried the box and it worked in Los Angeles. But we had to send the box to New York. Well, was it going to work? We're going to tr- push a button in Los Angeles and then it pops open in New York? That seemed like doomed to failure. So the winner is announced and then we press the button and it's only seconds, but it's the longest seconds in the world. We are sure we're about to embarrass ourselves. And then it popped open and we're like, oh, thank goodness. Oh, we did it. (laughs) That was the impossible part. That's amazing. Well, no surprise to us, but you pulled it off and it really was a show that will go down in history. So a big congratulations on another incredible achievement. And so you think after historic production of the Emmys, many of us would expect that maybe take some time off, relax, help your kids with the laundry, whatever you want to do. But knowing you, of course not. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about a very exciting project that was recently announced your newest film titled Safety. And from what I understand, Safety is a sports drama, right? Inspired by a true story of a collegiate athlete that's got a pretty incredible story. So, and it's coming to Disney Plus, I know soon. So I won't give any spoiler alerts, but can you give us a little sneak peek behind the project? Absolutely. Safety is an amazing project. I actually shot it uh, last summer and we've been working on it the entire time while doing the Emmys, while doing everything else I'm doing. And it's based on a true story of this kid, Ray McAtheby. He's from Atlanta, and he gets a football scholarship to Clemson, who's one of the most, you know, powerhouse football programs in the country. And he gets there, and he's taking 16 credits. And they say, you know, Ray, most athletes take 12 credits because the football program is incredibly demanding. And, you know, it's going to be hard to do to keep up with your demands on the field and 
have such a heavy school load? He goes, look, this is a free education. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to play football my whole life. So I'm going to take advantage of this free education. So I have a life beyond football. And you go, okay, Ray, let's see how it goes. So there he is. He's keeping his head just above water. And then he gets a phone call about his 11-year-old little brother backing up who's hanging out with drug dealers. And they're like, "Uh uh-oh. So he gets on a bus. He goes back to Atlanta, snatches up his little brother and says, what are you doing? He goes, I'm not doing anything bad. I'm just helping out and I can get something to eat. They go, something to eat? Just go home to mom. Mom will fix you something to eat. Says, mom's in jail. Mom's going to be in rehab for at least 30 days. So he realizes little 11-year-old little brother's all alone in this world. So he says, come with me. And he takes his little brother back to campus. You can't have your relative live with you on campus. That's against the rules. So he's hiding his little brother, playing football at Clemson level with taking 16 credits. It's an impossible load. How can he do all this stuff? And this is what the movie's about. How this kid does the impossible. He just makes a way out of nowhere because he's got no other choice. That's incredible. I can't wait to see that. And, and and especially since it's inspired by a true story. Yeah. No, in fact, well, you couldn't you couldn't make up a story like you that. Oh, that's that's too much. Oh, come on. How could someone do that? You know, we you could only tell this story because it's real. And you know, Ray was with us as we we're making the movie. You know, so we we're like, Ray, what? okay, okay. So we wanted to make sure that we got it right. That must have been incredible. Okay, I can't wait to see that. All right, so now I want to switch gears a little bit. Yeah. Talk about the pandemic's had a global impact, but it's not the only thing that we've dealt with this year that has really swept the entire world. And so I want to talk about the momentum we've seen in the continued fight for justice, the continued fight for racial equity. It's an ongoing fight that's lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years, and we still have a long way to go. But to you, why does this movement feel different, or does it feel different and more promising? Well, I think a couple of things were really crucial. One was modern technology uh, because, you know, everyone now has a camera, right? Because you have, you have cell phones, you can shoot video and you can two, press three buttons and it's distributed all over the world via social media. That's very powerful. So a lot of things that people say, oh, that didn't happen. Oh, I don't believe that. Well, here's video. Now, there's still people who will deny what they see because their mind can't accept the consequences of the proof of what they're saying. But the fact that this evidence was here, and then to amplify that, even though they've been these uh, tragic deaths over the years, for it to happen during COVID was a different thing because we lacked the distractions. You couldn't just, oh, I'm just gonna go to the movies and forget. Oh, I'm going to watch my favorite football game and not worry about it anymore. It was there in your face and there was nothing to do but look at it and think about it. And I feel like those unique set of circumstances made America go, wow, you know what? There's something very profoundly un-American happening. And, you know, this has been woven into our republic from the beginning. You know, we had unfinished business in 1776. I always think about the crack in the Liberty Bell and what a perfect metaphor that is for our country. 
it can't really ring true as long as you have that crack. And that's been the problem with our country. You know, you had these men who said, oh, you know, freedom and liberty for all. But the fact is there was this big asterisk when it came to slavery and the consequences of slavery. And unlike Germany, who came to terms with their uh, past, you know, and Nazism and said, this is horrible. We will destroy, you know, every remnant of this. So there will be no nostalgia about this. And we will teach it in school so people understand how evil this was. And we as Americans have never had a national reckoning toward our poisonous past, which continues into the modern day. There's no gap in this. You know, I was talking with my daughter and I, I had to tell her how old I was. I don't know why she didn't know, but I told her. And she goes, wait a minute, you were born before the Civil Rights Act was signed. I go, that's right. Before the Civil Rights Act, before the Voting Rights Act, I was born. So Black people did not have the full rights of Americans when I was born. Not my mother, me. That's amazing. That brought it home for her, that context, I'm sure. Right. So, it, you know, and it has to be because a lot of people say, oh, that was 400 years ago. What are you complaining about? Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> this is very modern day history that we're struggling and we're still struggling with it. You know, in this last election, you saw people waiting 11 hours to vote. Now, if we saw that in some country on the other side of the world, we'd go, oh, my God, those people have no commitment to a democracy. That's an embarrassment. You know, um, thank God we're shining light on the hill. But somehow we've regressed to the third world countries that we think we're better than. So we have to renew our commitment to democracy, renew our commitment to freedom for all, and take the hard steps it's going to take to... Um, to reset a broken limb that never got done right in the first place. I think you're right. Technology has has also is going to help us in that. So what do you think, what role can Hollywood play in the fight for equality? Well, the thing I, I, I must say I've been impressed by is that Hollywood has really uh, uh, taken on a, uh, a realization that, okay, we're going to do our part, you know, we don't know what other parts of uh, America are going to do, but um, Hollywood has made the most profound commitment to uh, integrating their offices that I've ever seen, uh, which is very important because it's, it's not just about, oh, we're going to hire uh, more black actors. It's about, well, who's actually making the decisions? Who's greenlighting things? Who are in positions of authority? Who is in a high enough person position that they can hire other people who are eminently qualified, but may be overlooked because, you know, that the old way of doing things didn't see every qualified candidate. And so when I see those changes happening in the office suites, then I go, OK, now we're on the verge of perhaps something meaningful happen. And that's part of it. And, you know, I've, you know, I've worked with universities. I'm on the board of UCLA and I've always said, okay, how do we get, 
you know, more diverse students in our school. You know, here we are in Los Angeles, one of the most diverse cities in America. How do we get that diversity on our campus? There's amazing stories to be told in all these different communities all over our city, you know, but, you know, we've got to give, you know, these young people the equipment and the resources and the knowledge of how to tell their story so we understand their lives. Because that's the power of Hollywood is that we are the dream factory and we can tell dreams, we can tell truths, and we can tell it on a global scale. And, you know, the, the, the challenge has been that there's, um, well, Hollywood, like a lot of business, is based on historicals, right? So they say, well, this traditionally has worked, so we're going to do that. The problem is there's all these things that have never been tried. So there are no historicals. So a conservative investor would go, well, I don't know, is there an audience for that? Who is that audience? How do we reach them from a marketing perspective? Is it going to play on the, around the world? There's been all this hesitancy. But if anyone can read a census, they can say, well, you know what? The market is changing, and we better change our product to connect to that market because the product that does reflect that diversity consistently is more successful than that which does not. So when you go, oh my gosh, those Fast and Furious movies, they make a ton of money. Yes, you mean those cool action movies with black, Latin, Asian, white, you know, cast all working together, looking great, doing cool things. Yeah, <laughs> that works. And everyone says it, but no one makes anything else like it. They just go, yeah, that's, yeah, we should do that. So, you know, suddenly when Marvel uh, and Disney make the Black Panther, a black superhero movie, and it outgrosses every other superhero movie, it suddenly makes over a billion dollars. And they go, oh, well, I didn't know that. And then Captain Marvel, they go, oh, women can't lead up superhero movies. Oh, but that one made over a billion dollars too. Oh, look, and Wonder Woman did it again. So suddenly, you know, all these, all this conventional wisdom falls away. And, you know, we've seen this time and time again, but, you know, this is why you've got to change the executives and the suites to have the fresh thinking, you know, to deal with the 21st century in a sincerely innovative way. That is so true. Because the, And then the power of seeing those stories, what it can do for people, uh, and, and bringing people together is extraordinary. So there, there've been a lot of great films and documentaries that are educational um, on this and everybody seems to be doing more, which is great to educate themselves on systemic racism and and some of the specific reasons why injustices continue to happen in, in America. And I know you're a film guru. So do you have any recommendations of one of the best documentaries that speak to these issues that we should recommend? Oh gosh, uh, there's so many movies. I would certainly recommend seeing The 13th by Ava DuVernay. It's a fantastic movie about how systemically unfair our prison system is. And we're always concerned about crime, of course, right? You know, we, we work hard, we have our stuff, we want to protect our families, protect our property. But the fact is, our justice system isn't reducing crime. It's not built to reduce crime. And you just go, wait, but we're spending all this money and we're not getting a, a good return on investment. The fact, the fact is, you know, we're not, I mean, 
we're, we're too concerned with punishment and not concerned with trying to prevent crime from happening in the first place. And it's just like, it's just a bad investment. You know, it's either better to stop it from happening than dealing with it after it happens. So that's a great movie to really look at the big picture of how to fix our criminal justice system. And again, you know, beyond the, 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 hum, the humanity of it all, it, it's just a matter of just like we're, we're, we're misspending money. I mean, I always figure, gosh, you know, if you don't care about humans, can you just care about your dollar and <laughs> your dollar being spent better? Spend your money better and be safer. I like that's a great recommendation. Yes. So 2020 is the year that I think we all want to put behind us because even after all we've talked about that we've experienced with the pandemic, we also shockingly lost a true hero in Chadwick Boseman. And I know you both worked together several times and you must have been very close. So can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Chadwick and the legacy that you think he leaves behind? Sure. Chadwick was... You know, yes, he was a movie star. He was starting the Black Panther and uh, all these other movies. We, I get, we got to work with him uh, when I did a movie about Thurgood Marshall. He played the lead role. But he's one of those guys, if he wasn't a movie star, if he was your barber, you'd still love him because he was an incredible human being. He was thoughtful. He was kind. He was very empathetic to everyone around him. He was a true intellectual. You know, he's the kind of person, if you give him a, a book as a gift, he goes, oh, man, thanks. Sincerely. He was like, wow, I want to read about that. You know, he loved the arts. He was a big supporter of, you know, not just his artistic endeavors, but encouraging young people. He was just a person who just really cared and a person of an immense bravery. I didn't know that he got his cancer diagnosis while we were making our movie together. He didn't tell anyone and he worked and he put in the long hours and he made movie after movie. And just go, wait a minute, you're, you're battling cancer. I'm sorry. I got cancer. That's it. I'm, you know, I, I'm just shutting the world out. Right. Going to the beach. <laughs> you're right. So, uh, you know, I'm going to the hospital, I'm going to the beach. That's it. <laughs> and this guy he just did it and he carried it. And he never complained. He never told anyone. I mean, it's really a, a portrait in incredible courage. Yeah, that's it's such an inspiration, but so tragic to lose him. But we're lucky, as I say, we're lucky to have had him for as long as we had him. Yes. And he's, you know, I really want to keep kind of holding him up because he's a great example of how to be a uh, a thoughtful, socially responsible, committed artist. And everyone who worked with him, you know, had understood that special spark that, you know, he had and the way he attracted people. And, you know, the night he passed, I got a call from, you know, everyone in our cast and they were all just destroyed. They were sobbing and because he just meant so much to all of us. Yeah, that's so that's so sad, but also inspirational. I think it's right. Keep it keeping that example alive. So lastly, Reginald, I, I love to close by looking forward and and being hopeful, which I know. And I know at some point life is hopefully going to return to more normalcy. You and I will go out and have a drink and we'll be back to uh, going to events. I hope the movies and, and living back like we like to live. What are you looking forward to most in 2021? Wow. So much. I'm very excited getting back on set and making movies. 
you know, uh, my son was saying, I miss going to the movies. I'm like, yes, you still got that spark in you. So I look forward to going back to a movie theater and seeing movies on the big screen again. I look forward to concerts. I love music. I, I, I do music. We're, we're, we're set up to bring my Hollywood Bowl show back next fall. So, uh, you know, we're excited about that. We're starting to book people. We're like, okay, if things work out, are you in? And I'm like, yeah, I'm in. So we're excited about that. There's so many great things that we do. And, you know, you don't miss things till you're gone. And the fact is humans are social animals. And we, we love being amongst each other. Some people go, oh, you know, after this pandemic, I'm never going to shake hands again. I go, you know what? Shake hands, I can come and go. But you know what I miss? Hugs. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. As an Italian, by her, I'm a hugger. And so I miss just going out and when you calling you up and saying, let's go have a drink and hugging you hello. I, I, well, we're going to do it as a counter. We're going to do it in 2020. Well, Reginald, thank you so much for, for joining. And this was really fun getting your perspective and talking about all these topics. Thank you, Kelly. And thanks to everybody for joining us today. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Reginald Hudlin and Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. For more information on Reginald Hudlin, visit hudlinentertainment.com. To learn more about City National Bank, please visit cnb.com.